he said, man, you're, you're good. Like, he's like, whenever you want to turn pro, come to this car lot. That's an old KFC, I think. No, it was a Dairy Queen. Um, so he, he turned an old Dairy Queen into a car lot after he got arrested. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're just a couple misfits from a small redneck town in Alabama. And he just backed me and he had the money to do it um, because he was a, a bookie for so long and he made a lot of money. And um, yeah, so. That was Will Wilcox you just heard from. Will's a professional golfer who, thanks to the other misfit from Alabama, reached the PGA Tour. Perhaps you, too, would like to be on the PGA Tour. I don't blame you. Have you seen the money PGA Tour players make these days? With on-course earnings and endorsements, a mid-level tour pro can bring in close to $2 million per year. You're traveling around the world, chasing the sun, playing world-class courses manicured to perfection. It's great work, if you can get it. It's getting it that's the problem. Because unlike team sports, there is no golf draft. When you turn pro in golf, you don't enter a draft or sign with a team. You simply say, hey, everyone, I'm a pro golfer. And then you're on your own. Unless you're a golf one percenter, a D1 All-American, or the number one amateur in the world, or a teenage phenom. Those guys, think Colin Morikawa, or Jordan Spieth, or John Rahm, they're going to be recruited by the big agencies, and they'll sign multiple endorsement contracts the minute they turn pro. Here's Golf Digest senior editor Mike Johnson, an expert in the equipment space. The terms of the contracts are generally not you know, disclosed. However, in speaking with a number of tour reps over the years, depending on the player, you know, these guys can be getting two, three mil, million dollars a year, certainly a million dollars a year. Again, those are the rare exceptions. Because for every Colin Morikawa, there are a thousand guys like the one we heard from in the beginning, Will Wilcox. Guys with dreams of playing for millions, and maybe even the game to get there, but definitely not the money to bankroll the journey. Between entry fees, hotels, rental cars, gas, and for the more buttoned-up events, caddies, playing a full season of mini-tour events to chase the dream can cost roughly $50,000 per year. And that's fine if you've got that endorsement money, or if you're also getting starts on the PGA Tour or the European Tour, or even the Corn Ferry Tour, where some solid play can result in some quick coin. But say you're someone like Will Wilcox, who's coming out of a Division II school in Georgia with no name recognition, good luck getting any corporate sponsors to pay you real money to wear their logo. And better luck getting any sponsors' exemptions into big events. So where is the money supposed to come from? From rich people, of course. I'm Daniel Rappaport, and this is Local Knowledge, the Golf Digest podcast that takes a deep dive into the most compelling stories in golf. Today's episode will explore the underworld of the PGA Tour sugar daddy. And we use that term jokingly, of course, but it fits quite nicely. By sugar daddy, we mean a wealthy individual who decides to fund the up-and-coming career of a professional golfer, usually in exchange for a percentage of the player's future earnings. If it sounds like just a simple investment opportunity, it's not. It's almost always much more involved and emotional than that. For most golf sugar daddies, it's about having skin in the game and the chance to enjoy the journey of professional golf, still not from inside the ropes, but closer than most. And it's about the simple satisfaction of helping someone chase their dream. There's actually a long history of this kind of arrangement, of wannabe pros finding a wealthy individual to fund the chase. Sometimes it's a group of investors, often guys from the same club, who want to support a kid they've seen around. It's real-life fantasy sports, so to speak. 
But that kind of group sponsorship deal is not as sexy as the true one-on-one situation, so let's focus on those. Perhaps the most successful example of such an arrangement dates back to the 1930s, when a wealthy Texan in the department store business decided to bankroll a young local professional named Ben Hogan. You might think these deals are the charming relics of a bygone era, surely in the age of wall-to-wall PGA Tour coverage and social media, but they're not. They still happen quite a bit. When Tony Finau was 17, for example, he bypassed college scholarship opportunities when a local Utah businessman offered to pay the $50,000 entry fee into The Ultimate Game, a made-for-TV tournament in Las Vegas that paid a $2 million grand prize. Finau finished 8th, by the way, and won $100,000. No two agreements are alike. It's the wild, wild west of contracts, so to speak. But you won't find a better deal anywhere, at least from the player's perspective, than the one Uncle Bob offered Joel Damon. Uncle Bob, it should be noted, is not really Joel's uncle. They're not related at all, actually. They met by chance during a practice round for the 2007 Washington State Amateur. Bob was caddying for his son. Damon wound up winning the tournament by six. The two stayed in touch. Fast forward two years, and Joel had flamed out of the University of Washington and was working the pro shop at his local golf course. But he wanted to turn pro and chase the PGA Tour dream, and he knew exactly who to call. Just sent an email over. I said, Bob, I don't know what else I'm going to do. I think it's the only thing I'm good at, so I might as well give it a go if you'd be willing to help out. He just said, yeah, okay. I think he gave me $15,000, wired it over my Bank of America in like a week, and uh, he said, go for it. I didn't know at all what I was doing. I didn't have a plan. I just knew that I was getting in a car and driving to Arizona that fall, um, and I was going to tell everybody I was a pro golfer. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what was entail. I heard about a gateway tour I was going to play. I had no idea. I don't really remember, but I remember thinking it was probably a pipe dream at the time. That was it. No payment schedule, no profit sharing, no contract. Joel had stumbled upon every up-and-coming pro's dream scenario. A true benefactor. Now, you might be wondering how Uncle Bob could afford all this. Well, Uncle Bob is Robert Yositis, and Robert Yositis was a jet fuel trader based in Hawaii for many years. He only moved to Washington, where he met Joel, because Washington had no state income tax and he was going to sell his business, which he did, to Ross Aviation in 2008, for a pretty penny. Put simply, Bob is rich, rich. I've been fortunate in life and I have a fair amount of money. So, like, you know, I wasn't looking at it as making money. I was just, the agreement was, you know, Joel, I'll give you the money you need and, you know, Hopefully someday you can do well enough to repay me. And if you don't do well enough to repay me, I've helped you out. So it was really more just, you know, almost, you know, like a deal would be with your kid where I was just sort of like supporting him almost like he would be my kid and just saying, well, hopefully one of these days you can repay me type of thing. Joel Damon is an established PGA Tour pro. He's inside the top 100 in the world rankings, and he's made over $6 million on the PGA Tour. But like so many of his peers, it wasn't money spinning right from the start. Damon trudged through years of mini tours in the winter and the Canadian Tour in the summer. The first year, he made $11,742 in tent and starts up north. The next year, $11,225. The next year, under $12,000 again. And during those lean times before Damon got to the PGA Tour, Yositis estimates he spent more than $250,000 on Damon. 
eventually I just said, look, Joel, just take my credit card, you know, and, and, you know, I'm too busy to be worrying about like every time you need money, call them up saying, you know, can you write me a check for this or write me a check for that? I just gave him my credit card and said, just charge whatever you want. Bob didn't only support Damon through his pro golf journey. He helped him through the fight of his life. When Damon was 23 and still toiling on the mini tours, he noticed a lump in his scrotum wasn't going away and he knew he needed to see a doctor. Joel was familiar with this whole process because a few years earlier, his older brother had beaten testicular cancer. So when he went in for scans, he feared the worst, and that's exactly what they showed. He, too, had testicular cancer. The doctors suggested chemotherapy, but there was one big problem with that plan. Joel didn't have health insurance, so he called Uncle Bob. I spoke to the doctor, and I said, well, what would you do if it was your kid? Because he was going to, I don't remember what kind of treatment he was going to give Joel, but he wasn't going to, like, operate on him, like, within a few days. He, he was going to, yeah, like, watch it and see what happened and treat it some other ways. And I said to him, I said, well, what would you do if it was your kid? And he says, well, I'd operate on him right away. And I said, well, I want you to operate on Joel right away. And he's like, well, Joel's insurance won't cover it. So I just said, well, I don't, here's my credit card number, operate on him. And that's what happened. Damon did, of course, do well enough to repay Bob. But Bob Yositis will not profit a single penny. Bob Yositis is the exception. For virtually every golf sugar daddy, there is at least some profit motive. Because they're taking a risk. A pretty big one, too. The vast majority of professional golfers never make it to the Corn Ferry Tour, let alone the PGA Tour. The odds of success are small, but... The potential payoff is lucrative. In other words, it's a gamble. Seeing as he has plenty of experience with wagers, Tim Jackson figured he'd be the perfect candidate to roll the dice. We did a little sports wagering back in the day. To be clear, Tim wasn't making the bets. He was housing them. This was early 2000s in Pell City, Alabama, back in the days before DraftKings and FanDuel. Back when the Interest rates were real high, and it was hard to sell a car. We were just trying to make some other income and did a little bit of sports wagering and took bets from a few people. But wasn't that much to it, but it's just something to get by with. Eventually, the Alabama Bureau of Investigation got wind of Mr. Jackson's venture. So he gets arrested and charged with a Class C misdemeanor. They have him red-handed. He has no real defense. Tim pleads guilty, and the judge gives him two options— he said, well, I sentence you to a year in county jail, or you can donate $100,000 to the Pell City school system. And I said, Judge, what do you need your money? And that was about it. But now, my wife was not very happy with me at the time. So Tim moves back into the used car sales business in Pell City. It's about 45 minutes from Birmingham. And it's there that his son starts hanging out at the local golf course with a promising junior named Will Wilcox. Wilcox ends up getting a scholarship to play at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, where his mom happens to be the women's golf coach. Will did not last long there. I got in a lot of trouble at UAB. Um, I got two Deweys. Dewey is DUI. He means he got two DUIs. Just got in a whole gauntlet of trouble because uh, I was going down to Tuscaloosa and, you know, Alabama, University of Alabama. Yeah. That's, a, that's a wild scene and... Um, so I lost my full ride, went to Clayton, um, which was very lucky. I tried to, I tried to get in the military, um, and they didn't let me in. And so I went to Clayton and, uh, cause the, 
coach just heard about me and um so then they offered me like the full ride over there clayton state is a small division two school about an hour outside of atlanta hardly a golf powerhouse but will ends up winning the 2008 alabama amateur championship and becomes a three-time all-american there he decides he wants to turn pro but being a three-time all-american at clayton state is not the same as being a three-time all-american at oklahoma state and that plus will's criminal history made him a tough sell to corporate sponsors. So he decided he'd ask his friend's rich dad, who he knew liked to gamble. Well, basically, they came to me and asked me would I be interested in getting a group together to sponsor him on the tour, and I told them no. I just wanted to do it myself. And basically, my son had always told me what a great player he is. You know, and I've watched him play before, and, and uh, I thought there was talent there, and I thought it'd be you know, a decent investment. So that, as opposed to Bobby Sidus's benevolence, is how it usually goes. A rich guy knows an up-and-coming pro, and he wants to help him. But he also wants a chance to make money. So while Damon had Bob's credit card, Will's situation was much more structured. He goes to Tim's used car lot, remember, the old Dairy Queen, and they hammer out terms on an eight-year deal. First four years, 100% expense paid. Uh, first 50 grand, he took uh, 70%. And then post 50 grand earned on the golf course, uh, I got 60%, he got 40. And then the last four years, you know, he's basically banking on me making it to the tour and uh, no expenses paid. And uh, he earned 9% at the end of the year of the total earnings. This story has a happy ending. Will did indeed get to the PGA Tour, and it happened pretty much on the exact timeline that they were planning. But in those early days, before Will got status anywhere, he was playing mini-tour event after mini-tour event after mini-tour event, and Tim was in the hole. At one point, when I was about a year into it, or no, maybe I was only six months into it, he was like, I just remember him being like, damn, Willie, I'm down, I'm down 14 grand. And I just, that, that, hit me, that hit me hard, and I think he knew that it did and that that wasn't productive. <laughs> it wasn't good telling and you so, how much, how much money no, you we, were costing him? Yeah, exactly. And I was just, you know, I mean, 14 grand to me at that time was like a million bucks. I mean, it was like, I was just, uh, anyhow, after that, I ended up hitting it pretty big. I won a couple events for 40,000 uh, my first year out, and, and, and then we just started rolling. Four years after turning pro, Wilcox got his PGA Tour card for the 2013-14 season. And remember, after year four of the deal with Tim, Tim didn't have to put up a single dollar and would receive 9% of Wilcox's on-course earnings. So just as he was off the hook, Wilcox started playing for big boy money. And this is Will Wilcox setting up a little left. Clubface aiming a little right. And an interesting squirm at that one. There you go. There you go. That was our man Willie Wilcox acing the Island Green 17th hole at TPC Sawgrass during the 2016 Players' Championship. And that'll probably be the enduring memory of Will's golf career, but it actually came at the tail end of his time on the PGA Tour. Will made 56 starts on the PGA Tour from 2013 through the end of the 2015-16 season. And when you include his earnings from the rare Corn Ferry start during those years, he made $2,494,000. $942 from January 2014 through July 2016. 9% of that, and thus a rough estimate of Jackson's cut, 
equals $224,544. And that wasn't Jackson's only profit on Will. Vegas would always put, you know, on the main tour, Vegas would put out odds on finishing top 10, top 20, uh, you know, all kind of little bets like that. And we'd just play, food, you know, bet $100 here or there or something. A wager on top of a wager. And during Will's time on the tour, these two dudes from Pell City, Alabama, absolutely took a moment to spell the roses, to enjoy their time in the sun. When I was on tour, I mean, we'd friggin', I mean, we'd just be laughing hysterically about the money we were making. You know, he flew to a lot of my tournaments. Um, we ate dinner every night. Um, we talked on the phone multiple times a week. I mean, especially when I'm playing good. Yeah. Um, you know, we'd just have a great time drinking nice bottles of wine and just laughing about how good life was. And that's another huge motivation for someone like Tim or Bob. You have a horse in the race. You feel like you're involved on a professional golf journey. You get the rush of competition without ever having to hit a shot. And you have a pretty cool story to tell your golfing buddies. We'd get in the clubhouse and see all the players and get to eat with them and uh, got to hang out like that. It was, to me, it was, it was worth, I can't tell you what that was like. I mean, you'd be in the clubhouse and all the big pros or stars were in there and uh, getting to see them and speak to them. And, you know, it was just a great experience. If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be Right is Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. I beat Clayton Rask in the first round. I beat Ricky Fowler in the second round. I beat Dustin Johnson in the third round. And then I beat Alex Prue in the fourth round to win. So it was, it was a pretty cool experience. That guy beat Ricky Fowler and Dustin Johnson in match play to win the Western Amateur, one of the oldest and most prestigious events on the amateur circuit. And he was 17 years old at the time. Surely he's on the PGA Tour. If not, definitely the Corn Ferry Tour. Wrong. That's 31-year-old Jared Hack, a professional golfer who's never had a PGA Tour card and hasn't had Corn Ferry playing privileges since 2018. Hack is now a caddy at Shadow Creek in Las Vegas, where the Tiger Phil match and last year's CJ Cup was. He's still chasing the dream, the guy that beat Ricky Fowler and Dustin Johnson playing the mini tours. But the mini tours aren't what they used to be, not since the PGA Tour started the PGA Tour Latino America, the PGA Tour Canada, and the PGA Tour China. Guys want to play those tours because it's a way to get to the Corn Ferry Tour, which is the main avenue to the PGA Tour. But the thing about Latino America, Canada, and China is that they're big places. You can't drive from course to course every week or stay at your own place to save money. It's more expensive to play those tours than a tour that plays all its events in South Florida or Scottsdale, Arizona. We should note that a couple mini-tours, mainly the Outlaw Tour in Arizona, had an awesome 2020. But that was because of the pandemic and the hiatus for the PGA and Corn Ferry Tours, and the cancellation of the PGA Tours development circuits. Odds are, once those get going again, the mini-tour scene will dry up again as those players head to Canada or down to Latin America or over to China. 
But back in the late 2000s, when Jared was just starting to play the mini tours, you could make some real money. I mean, my first three or four years playing mini tour golf, I played the e-golf tour and they were getting 220 man fields, two golf courses, $1,200 entry fee. And you were getting, you'd have the same 30 or 40 guys that would 100% miss the cut every week, which you needed, uh, you know, a lot of the better players would kind of get upset being paired with, you know, one or two of them occasionally, but you know, the guys who ran the tour would come up to us and say, Hey guys, they're paying, you know, two grand a week or whatever to play. They, they don't want to keep playing with guys who are shooting 82 either. They want to at least get some value for their money kind of thing. So you, you had to keep them happy as well. The better mini tour players would call these guys, the ones who always miss the cut donators. They donate their entry fee to the pot and certainly miss the cut. The donators have dried up. No one's exactly sure why. Some tours sold or consolidated, which definitely had a role. Plus, it's a different financial climate where people have a better idea of what it takes to be a PGA Tour player and know that they aren't it. Who knows? In any case, it's harder to make money playing mini tours or state opens than ever. Which is why people like Jared need a golf sugar daddy. Jared found his by accident at a local skins game at a Las Vegas Muni. A local lawyer named Taylor Randolph had noticed Jared's awesome short game, so he asked him for a lesson. And he's like, you know, I really don't like paying hourly or, you know, per lesson. Can I just pay you for the year? And at that time, Canadian Tour Q School, the, the registration was going to open the next week. And I said, you know, that I can, I can do that. Uh, do you mind paying for Canadian Q School? And he's like, no problem. So we did that. And then last year, Canada didn't happen. My Q School didn't run. So it kind of turned into, hey, well, what, what other events do you have coming up? And I said, well, I have this, this, and this to play over the summer. Uh, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, let's do that. And then we'll, we'll kind of work something out to where uh, you, you get to free roll, basically. I'll take all the financial exposure and any profits you make, we'll just split 50-50. And I mean, in my situation, uh, having had little tournament experience the last few years, uh, having struggled a little bit in, you know, 18 and 19, it was a perfect opportunity for me to get to play a lot of events and, and get that tournament experience I needed and, and not really have any financial risk of burning everything I made at Shadow to go try to chase my dreams some more. Those are all success stories. Damon and Wilcox made the PGA Tour and Hack's benefactor is giving him a lifeline to not give up on the chase just yet. But it doesn't always go so well. Around the time Wilcox got his PGA Tour card, he struck another one-on-one -on -one deal with a young guy who had made a killing from the cleanup effort after tornadoes tore through Alabama in 2011. He had a lumber company, and he came into some money. And Will would wear the logo of this guy's company on his shirt for a full season on the PGA Tour in exchange for $30,000, to be paid over four increments of $7,500. He was throwing a lot of money around for a couple of years, and I put this big gaudy logo on my shirt when I was on the big tour, and, uh, and wore it all year, followed through on my end of the bargain, and he never paid me, and he kind of disappeared, and to this day, I hear he's still driving an Audi R8. And therein lies the danger in these one-man sponsorship arrangements. Just like his deal with Tim, Will never really wrote this deal down on a legally enforceable document. It was based on trust, which is fine when you're dealing with your best friend's dad, but not so much when it's some random guy who just came into a bunch of money. 
And still, that wasn't Will's worst interaction with this guy. That came during a local skins game in Alabama. The sponsor brings in Will to be his ringer. It's a scratch game, so no strokes. And the rest, you just have to hear. And we ended up winning like almost 900 bucks. Um, and not that we got to see a dime of it. And they ended up, uh, my, my car, so they come up to me on the 18th fairway. They heard how I was playing. And they're like, we're going to let you finish this round. And we're not giving you your money back. And you don't get any of the money that you won because y'all hustled us. Even though on the first tee, I said, I'm on the PGA Tour. Wait, you, were, you, had, you had tour status at this point? Yeah, I was full. I mean, I was. I had just finished like twelfth or something like that in Memphis the week before. So, so you said like, you said I am on the PGA tour. I, I you, they, you made it clear. Just, like yes, I made it extremely clear in the first tee. And the other guy was like, "This guy's on the PGA tour. I saw him on TV a few weeks ago. <laughs> He's from right down the street." And then they just go, "No, no, you're not. You're just some teaching pro." I was driving it all the time, and the course you can pretty much drive every green if you can hit it two ninety plus. And, you know, I just was driving greens and making eagles and, and uh, <laughs> shot like 13 under or something. And um, sure enough, at the end of the day, one of the guys pulls his truck behind mine, blocks me to where I am wedged between his truck and the clubhouse. They open up the, the back of the Tahoe I was driving and just start taking shit. While you're standing there? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm just standing there. I mean, these guys look like NFL players. Like, you, they were You can't do monsters. it. There's nothing you're going to do. No, hell no. I was like, no, y'all have it all. I was, like, I was like, just let me. I mean, I was encouraging it. I was like, <laughs> I, I was like, I have nothing to do with this. Like, this moron invited me up here. You know, he's, I don't need, I barely know him. I just, I've heard about Roebuck and I was coming to play with you guys. <laughs> and, uh, but they, they, they were pretty mean. Like, although I did like, take a picture and sign an autograph for like one or two of them, but the other like 13 were all just livid. Another cautionary tale is that of Champagne Tony Lima, one of the stars of the PGA Tour in the 1960s and the winner of the 1964 Open Championship. Before that success, though, Lima was just a local pro wanting to play the tour without the money to do so. So he struck up a deal with a businessman named Jim Malarkey, who had made a bunch of money in the plywood business. Here's Guy Yoakum, a former Golf Digest senior writer and basically a golf encyclopedia. Uh, the terms of the deal was, is Malarkey would give him this money. He would front him a certain amount of money, so usually a neighborhood of fifteen dollars or $16,000. And Lima would have to pay that back. This was not a gift. And the debt from year to year would carry forward and it would accumulate. And then whatever Lima won in prize winnings, he had to give Malarkey a third of that. And not only of his prize winnings, but anything that he made uh, off the golf course. So it was a tough deal. Tough indeed. It sounds like something Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank would propose. This was a loan. If Lima didn't make $16,000 that year, which was not that easy to do in those days, he'd have to pay Lima back, one way or the other. Lima was in debt throughout the early 60s, and it aided him personally and professionally. In 1963, he hired a team of lawyers to get out of the deal. He skipped the Open Championship, Western Open, and the Canadian Open that year, and these were all big events, to work with his attorneys, who eventually did get him out. Here's what Lima said of the ordeal. I was not only flat broke after having earned $110,000 in 18 months, but I was in hawk up to my ears. That's equivalent to $942,000 today, by the way. Here's Lima again. 
I'm embarrassed to say what I had to pay Malarkey to get out of the contract, but anyone can figure out that it came out to a good deal more than $50,000. Another sponsorship rift involves Tony Finau, who was recently sued for more than $16 million by Molinai Hola, a different investor than the one who fronted the 50 grand for the Ultimate game when Finau was 17. In the suit, Hola says he paid excuse for Finau and his family for several years, with the expectation he'd be reimbursed for those expenses and receive 20% of Finau and his brother Gipper's professional earnings. Lawyers for Finau, however, dispute the facts of the original deal and claim Hola's demands for repayment fall outside the statute of limitations. The matter remains unresolved. The sugar daddy business is a risky business, even in the famously risk-averse world of golf. Of course, Joel Damon and Will Wilcox and Jared Hack and probably Tony Lima and Tony Finau would have preferred to have their sponsorship money come from TaylorMade or Morgan Stanley. But someone in the situation of, say, 23-year-old Joel Damon, they'll take any dollar they can get. A lot of people say, oh, if you're good enough, you'd always make it. I don't know without Bob who what I've ever even maybe even tried. Local Knowledge is produced by Gregory Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music for today's episode is called Wegewerfen Oder Behalten, and it's by Kelly Caster. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It's a big help. Thank you.